Support for WJFF Radio Catskill comes from the River Reporter newspaper in Narrowsburg, New York, riverreporter.com. From the Women's Health Center in Holmesdale, Hamlin, Waymart, Carbondale, and Lords Valley in Pennsylvania. Physicians and certified midwives who deliver. The Women's Health Center is a Wayne Memorial Community Health Center. WMH.org. WJFF Jeffersonville. You're listening to Radio Catskill. Another edition of Let's Talk Vets. I'm your host, Staff Sergeant Doug Sandberg. This is where we discuss vet-centric topics, the good, the bad, and the ugly. In the hope that listeners will better understand our veterans, our veterans will know they're not alone, and perhaps along the way, we'll learn something about each other. We sincerely hope we accomplish that mission. The opinions expressed herein are mine alone as a veteran. Tonight, we're pleased to welcome Rick Walls, Executive Director of Towns for Troops, an NGO that fosters relationships and understanding between U.S. military members and the communities where they serve. And as you will learn, small acts of kindness make a huge difference for our women and men in uniform and our veterans. First, however, here's Dawn Shaw, Director of the Hudson Valley VA Healthcare System, with your updates from the VA Today. Hello. VA Hudson Valley is now administering the COVID-19 booster shot for our veterans who are age 65 and over. And we strongly encourage our veterans to protect themselves by getting these shots. Uh, I wanted to share with you how we are offering the vaccine, but also I want everyone to keep in mind that this is changing rapidly and Due to this program airing on November 23rd, by that time, uh, eligibility may have changed. So please check uh, with the healthcare system. But um, to let you know, we are offering the COVID-19 booster shot at our Castle Point campus every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday from 8.30 a.m. until 4 p.m., except holidays, of course. And veterans can stop by uh, during those times to get their booster shot, or they can also call and schedule an appointment if they prefer. Um, The number to call for an appointment is 845-831-2000, extension 217-666. Also, we're offering the same booster shots at our Montrose campus, And that's being offered Monday and Thursdays each week from 8.30 a.m. until 4 p.m. So please um, come on out and get your COVID vaccine booster shot and continue to protect yourselves from the virus. Uh, We welcome all our veterans to come in and receive that age 65 and over currently. 
also, it is flu season, and flu season is upon us, and we really want to encourage our veterans to also protect yourselves against the flu, and we are offering walk-in appointments as well for flu shots. And veterans can stop by our Castle Point campus any weekday from 8.30 a.m. to 4 p.m. to get a flu shot. We're offering it right uh, inside the main entrance, and our veterans can walk right in and get that done. In addition, at our Montrose campus, we have walk-in flu vaccine offered every Tuesday and Friday from 8.30 a.m. until 4 p.m. So please, um, if those days and times are not convenient, you can also be sure to get vaccinated during regularly scheduled appointments or work it out with your care team in your primary care areas, you can always call and work out a scheduled appointment that works for you. But please, uh, we're heading into the winter months and we want everyone to be as protected as possible as we move into more indoor settings and keep everybody safe and healthy. I also want to tell you uh, some good information about a new person that has joined the Hudson Valley team, and it's a new position here at Hudson Valley. I'm very excited to announce the addition of Carl LaFaro to our staff. Um, this is a new position, and it's called the Community Engagement and Partnership Coordinator for our Suicide Prevention Program. As everyone knows, suicide prevention is the utmost importance, and Carl is going to be working on uh, outreaching with our community partners in trying to prevent everything we can for suicide. Carl is a U.S. Army veteran. He comes to us from a VA office in Colorado where he worked doing research on veteran suicide. And his role is to partner with communities to veteran suicide prevention coalitions. To learn more about Carl's work or start a discussion about starting a coalition in your community, please contact Carl Lafaro at Carl, C-A-R-L dot Lofaro, L-O-F-A-R-O at V-A dot gov. And he'd be very happy to connect with your, your community and start a program there. We'd love to have Carl join us on a show hopefully next month, so he can tell you more about the great work he's already doing and more detailed plans of what to do for our veterans in our local communities. Thanks always, Doug. Appreciate the time, and everybody stay safe and healthy. Thank you. There are literally thousands of NGOs dedicated to veteran services. The majority of these serve veterans after the fact. Our veterans and active military members account for roughly 1% of the total U.S. population. Now, for many civilians, they know or are related to or work with a veteran. But as we pointed out, each vet's experience is unique, and even the most benign military service can leave one disconnected. Deployment to a war zone or injury sustained in conflict amplifies that civilian-military gap. Well, Rick Walls is not a vet, 
although he did work for the government for 35 years. And upon retirement in 2009, a friend invited him to visit a warrior transition unit. What is a warrior transition unit, you ask? Well, it is a transition assistance unit with the mission of overseeing the health and welfare and morale of warriors receiving medical care at Army military treatment facilities. Now, warrior transition units have now become soldier recovery units. It was this experience that gave Rick his mission. It started out simply enough when Rick decided that a very important part of the healing process for these military members is diversion, something to take their minds off their problems, their injuries, the military, if only for an afternoon. Leave the uniform in the footlocker, put on the civvies, and let's go downtown and have some fun. Such was the genesis of Towns for Troops. Welcome to Let's Talk Vets. Rick Walls, Executive Director of Towns for Troops. Hello, Doug. Glad to have you. I'm glad we finally got together. Yes, yes, I am too. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Well, you and I got acquainted up here in the Hudson Valley with the Hudson Valley Veterans Task Force, of which you, well, I guess you're still a member, even though you're not around here anymore, correct? Yes, yep. I'm still a member. I tune in as often as I can, very frequently. And, uh, of course, anything that I can get out of this, I immediately channel that back to our resources, what I call the mothership right up there in the Hudson Valley, where it all started. There you go. What is your service, Rick? Are you a veteran? I am not a veteran, no, sir. Wow. Then that begs the question, what prompted you to get interested in helping active duty members and veterans with this uh, unique organization? Well, let me take one step back. Um, grandfather was served in World War One. Father and his brothers in Pacific World War Two. His youngest brother, my uncle, a, a National Guard Korean War. He was uh, uh, killed in action in Korea. Nieces, nephews, aunts, uncles. My son is currently serving. He joined the uh, South Carolina National Guard about three years ago. It escaped me at age 18. My father said, "You will join the Navy," and that was it. That was the demand. So uh, I actually went to the recruiter twice in Spring Valley, New York, and both times he wasn't there. And before I could go a third time, I was involved in a pretty serious car accident. And um, that just pretty much eliminated that option of, of being in the military service. So life goes on. And then what I did was after working for the federal government in communications for 35 years, I retired and coincidentally ran into a friend who was an Army reservist, both lived in Monroe. And uh, he was back in the States after working in some field hospitals and uh, over in Germany as well. And he said, why don't you come on over to uh, the WTU, the Warrior Transition Unit? We could we could use your, your positive energy and all your connections. And I looked at him and said, I don't know what you're talking about. It's just me. Anyway, I went. And that was the day that changed my life. When I went there and I saw these young men and women who had been through uh, one of two fronts, one of two wars, Iraq and Afghanistan. And I saw them go through their rehabilitation, getting them back up to snuff. Uh, my terminology, again, because I'm not military. And um, so the WTU, Warrior Transition Unit, what they do is, is they uh, evaluate your disability, your injuries, and try to get you to do something in the service. And if not, then, of course, you're released, and you are now a veteran, and you're turned over to the VA. A very large majority of them were uh, were at the Keller Hospital for some rehab, you know, because they're strong on PT there with all the sports that they have. 
and I saw getting used to their prosthetics. Um, I saw some burn injuries, uh, some disfigurement, and it was the mental outlook that really stole my heart. The, um, the despondence, the loneliness, the fear, the anger. And at that time, my two sons were aged 17 and 19. So needless to say, when I saw their faces, I saw my son's faces. I met with some wonderful staff. I would never second guess the care that they got. I'm second to none. We're so fortunate to live in the United States of America when I say that. And I really do mean that. But what was missing was a touch of home, best way I could put it. And the fact that these men and women were having no visitors because they weren't even close to home, most of them. So somehow I held up my composure. And um, I promised I would go back. I'm a man of my word, and I did. And being from the lower Hudson Valley, you don't have to be Jewish to love uh, uh, bagels, okay? When you go back, you bring bagels. That's what you do. And so um, a couple of bags of that and put them on a table, and most of them looked and said, what is it? So I will figure this out. And I just listened, and I let them talk. And I listened about home and pets and hunting and fishing and NASCAR and football and boyfriends, girlfriends, and I would go back again and again and again. And after a few months, I realized the only visitor they had was me that was not wearing a uniform. So we kind of built up a little bond. The average soldier was probably there 90 to 120 days before they transitioned, and a few a little bit longer. And after about six months, we got a little bit more mobile, and I said, you know, can we go on a field trip? Can, these, can I take a van load of guys and gals that, Put their civvies on. Forget the fact you're a soldier, you know, for a few hours. Let's go into town. Let's go get pizza. Let's go to a movie. Let's go to a bowling alley. Let's go to Bear Mountain to a car cruise. Let's go up to Moroni's to hang out where there's some motorcycles, Orange County Choppers, Paulie Sr. Fantastic medicine because he would make anybody laugh. And that's what basically what got us rolling. Yep. So, like I said, it stole my heart. And I, I have a mission in life, and I, I'm not that spiritual, but I did pray a few times. And I just said, Lord, give me two strong legs for as long as you can. I have to do something. I cannot unsee what I saw. When about was that? I would say that was um, July or August of 2009. So we're talking 12 years ago. Okay. Wow. You've been there for a while. So mm -hmm. what we did was, was for, for many years, um, all of our efforts, what I call grassroots, and um, we were actually going on to some pretty hefty trips down to New York City, HBO, the Intrepid Museum, Yankee Stadium. I was opening up a lot of doors, and uh, but the transportation was never available. It was something we had to provide. When I say we, we had a good core group of volunteers in our local community, basically around the Monroe-Woodbury area. And so we created some fundraisers. And then along came the idea of, well, why don't you uh, become a non-for-profit and you might be eligible for some funding? So a little bit scary uh, turf because I really had no idea how to go about something like that. But um, we did. And you throw a bunch of paperwork together. You have to have a board of directors. You need to have insurance, banking, all that kind of stuff. So now we start spending money that's not directly on our troops, which bothered me. But this is something you have to go through. And... Um, yeah, bylaws and everything, and you throw it onto a big envelope and you put a stamp on it down to the IRS, it goes, and when it comes back, your guess is as good as mine. And it was a few months, and we got to pack it back. It was date stamped approved, and the date stamped date was 9-11-17. Wow. Yeah, so I said, boy, if I ever needed a signal from above, like I said, I'm not that spiritual, but I looked up and said, thank you, I'm, well, I'm on the right track, 
sometimes you need that uh, that little talk, you know. But what happened was is we had to transition because that WTU was phased out after about three years of efforts. So looking at it from a civilian standpoint, we were providing a great service, but we had no customer base. So we had to adjust. Now, there is a small um, active duty military uh, presence at West Point, of course. We don't deal with the cadets because they have their, you know, they're taken care of, of course. So we had Army there. We have our National Guard at Peekskill. We have Marine unit up at Stewart Air National Guard Base along with the Air Reserves. And that was a surprise. I said, what are Marines doing at an air base? But again, I'm not military. It sounded kind of odd to me. But sure enough, they're there. God bless them. And then as time went on, there's Coasties right down Staten Island at Fort Wadsworth, which is Army. So that was a head scratcher for me. I'm like, Coast Guard and an Army base. Okay. Sounds like swampland in Florida to me. But again, I'm not military. You're going to hear me say that continually. So we just uh, we do whatever we can and um, just try to tie it all together. So we know how you came up with the idea, and it's a great idea, and it definitely fills a void. You still have to come back to the place you left, and the military experience changes a person. It makes you grow up. Maybe you don't fit in quite as well anymore. So I think what you hit upon is brilliant in that it keeps them bonded to the community wherever they are, and as you so well put it, it is kind of a touch of home. So, Rick, you now live in South Carolina. What does Towns for Troops look like today? Ten years in the New York Hudson Valley area. Board of Directors, we have our officers set up. We have a huge base of volunteers when we have certain things going on. Just about a year and a half ago, my wife and I decided to retire and head out to the Charleston, South Carolina area. And just as soon as we got here, COVID hit, so everything was just about shut down. But November of last year, a Joint Base Charleston, which oversees the Naval Weapons Station, I finally had the opportunity for a sit-down to talk with their marketing department and said, this is who we are, this is what we do, and if you give me a chance, I'll show you how much support is out there in the community, which you're probably not aware of. And within three weeks' time, this was in late November of last year, we were able to generate 450-some stockings filled um, just by putting up some signs in local communities. And we proofed them all, made sure everything, everything was adequate, I should put, you know, and, and, and in good shape. And no empty uh, candy wrappers, put it that way. And we delivered them to the base, and they just looked at us with open eyes and were like, wow, we had no idea. I said, well, you don't, because you're military, and you look at things one way, and we're civilians, and we look at things another way. One of my contacts said to me one time that we have to teach the military how to speak civilian before they get out. And I think it's just as important for civilians to speak military or speak veteran. So uh, I think your interactivities with the town kind of help the civilians learn how to speak veteran and, and military. You're absolutely right. So we've got a small base. When I say we, my wife and I, we have a small base here of civilians and neighbors, and we reach out to them for certain things. We just had a chili cook-off, so that was basically a different volunteer pool than what we're doing now. And yesterday, in fact, we launched um, year two for um, stock a Santa for Soldiers, where we take stockings. We provide them with collection boxes. member of the uh, 
community. They take a stocking home with a, with a suggested list. They fill it. They bring it back. We dump them out. We proof them. We make sure everything is appropriate, not outdated. Like I said, no empty candy wrappers or things like that. Put them all together. Put them in boxes. And our goal is for the third week of December to bring them down to joint base, drop them off. And again, it's up to the CEO who will probably go through his or her first sergeants. Now, again, I'm using Army terminology because I volunteered with them for, for 10 years. But every branch has the same type of uh, you know, leadership, just different names for it. And then they can distribute them to the single warriors is what the term that we use. It's totally up to them. We're not going to say where the stockings go. You have a better feel of who the men and women are that need a little touch of home. Those that can't go home, those that are a bit despondent, maybe have had some health problems that are trying to get back on their feet. Might be some families going through some tough times and mom and dad will do everything they can to you know, take care of the children, but they can't take care of each other. Well, here's a stocking for you. You know, the community's thinking about you. We love you. We respect you. And we know the sacrifices that you've made and continue to make. And we truly do appreciate that. So it's our way. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing to do. Okay, so this is this is mutually beneficial, though. It helps the civilian community as well. I mean, the community you're in, and yeah. people get a, a, a lot out of this. You guys have done a lot of events from the list that you sent me. How many events have you done so far between the time you were founded and, and, and now? Oh, my gosh. That, that number, I, I couldn't even begin to tell you. What I did was is, uh, I looked back on 2019, which is what I would call a normal year. Well, that's right. That was that was 2019 and 2020 that you sent me. Yeah. yeah. So 2019, and this is exclusive to the Hudson Valley area. We had a total of 79 events, and I called "Touch the Lives." We were able to touch the lives of having over 4,600 men and women in uniform that we were able to do something for, whether it was a cookout, a retirement, yellow ribbon ceremony. We're able to support that theme parties where if you're ever if you're ever in a, in a in a depressed mood you want to have some fun bring some easter eggs and hide them out in front of a marine barracks and let them know what's out there <laughs> <laughs> these guys are hysterical pushing and shoving and grabbing and trading and it's just it's, it's just it's it's so heartwarming it really is so i just said to a friend of mine you probably know uh, john crotty yeah i've heard him yes yeah yep. so he's the uh, he's the director up at the um up the veteran service office in Monticello, Sullivan County. And I, I said to him for Veterans Day, I wanted a soundbite. I said, John, what does it mean to be a veteran? And he went through his thing. And I, uh, whatever he said, I said, so there is uh, truth to the statement that there are no former Marines. And he said, no, it's a lifelong affliction. <laughs> It most certainly is. Which I yeah. thought that, that was kind of kind of a <laughs> neat thing to say. Is. Yep. But we try to spread the wealth if we get a request. And after a couple of years, we were getting requests from COs at bases because they saw who we were and what we were doing. And it wasn't about getting a photo op with the colonel or the general. It didn't matter. We would rather see you not in your uniform. You know, take that monkey off your back for a couple of hours, even if we come to you. But um, that's not our call to make either. That's up to command to do that. But um, we've had like a fishing day at Black Rock Fishing Game Club. And, and God bless those guys. Anytime I knocked on their door and said, I have an idea, which is your clue to run the other way, they were there hand and foot. They couldn't do enough for us. So they would stock their stream and we would have the families come out with their kids and, and go fishing. And again, it's just get out of that routine, get out of that, um, that rut. 
get out of that pressure, the stress, and, and come on out with your son and daughter or just your spouse and you know, pull up a chair and, and watch the water go by. Something as calm as that. In 2019, now when I say uh, 4,600 men and women in uniform, um, we don't count children because they move around so darn fast. You don't know if they brought one or 21. So um, that number was probably triple that if you had to uh, include those numbers. But the smallest event we had was on Christmas Eve, a young Marine family were PCSing, you know what that means, yes. up to the Hudson Valley. And we heard, we got a, uh, some intel that the children were a little um, upset because Santa would not find them because they were moving. Well, I had an in with Santa, and we gave him a quick call, and he made sure it was their first stop. So when they got to their new home, Santa had been there already. So that was like just a family, which is very important, but that was like the smallest event that we had. And the largest was at um, Stewart Air National Guard Base. There, I want to call Command Sergeant Major, but again, I know I'm incorrect because I'm speaking Army. Uh, he was retiring, and they had a drill weekend, and he wanted everybody to come in and do uh, some Special Olympics and all and have some great fun. And he asked me if I could do a barbecue, and I said, absolutely. He's only going to be about 500. So, so, yeah. so, so my knees buckled and a look on my face before I could say a word. He's like, we, we can help. We can help. And I said, uh, we got this not to worry. So I left there and I, I made a few phone calls to a local church and to uh, the American Legion in Monroe and a few other places. And we had more than enough people and we, we cranked out one heck of a meal. It was a great day. That's amazing. So, yeah. so I'd like to get your opinion on some things in general. And you're not a veteran, so your opinion uh, as a civilian will be um, interesting here. We are fortunate that we have so many NGOs like yours that have stepped up to provide programs that, quite honestly, our government should in many cases. For instance, just take the Hudson Valley Veterans Task Force, how many different organizations and how many different things that they do. My brother Vinny, that provides furniture and, and all these different organizations that provide housing and and uh, look after homeless. And, I mean, it just goes on and on and on. Since I've been doing this show since uh, the summer of 2018, it struck me is there's no one place for a caregiver or a veteran or even a military member to go in an area when they know they're getting out to find out where they can get the services that they need if not supplied by the government and the VA. So, you know, what are your feelings on that? Should we, shouldn't we have some kind of a registry? I've approached New York State several times and de different representatives said, you know, I don't think it's a big deal to set up a web presence, uh, maybe under Veterans Affairs and list county by county, all the different organizations, including the VFWs and the American Legions and the even the churches and, and different organizations that provide some degree of support to veterans. What do you think about that? Absolutely, yes. I couldn't agree with you more. I'm going to refer to vet to vet which you're aware of with Larry Newman, runs a fantastic organization. Yes, he does. He's, he's, yeah. he's aces, that guy. He is. He's, I think he's got like 250 uh, agencies, most of which are non-for-profits under his umbrella. And... Um, you know, and you've seen it, I'm sure, with the emails. There might be a veteran in need, for example, say the, the dead of summer and uh, the heat's intolerable and his window air conditioning died. If anybody can help, 
So first thing in the morning, I get on to say, you know, what can I do? And there's already three separate um, companies that are on their way putting that air conditioner in the window. And that's because of networking. And there was a base. And Larry had that base. And he put it out there through an email. So like you said, if each county had a registry and your nonprofits, along with your county agencies and towns and cities and your local congressmen and assemblymen in New York, as an example, if they can say, this is what we do. And if you need us, give us a call, give us a shout, send us an email. These are our hours where a, uh, a veteran or an active duty who's going to become a veteran very soon, leaving the service, because that's where we find we have the most need is trying to get accustomed to civilian life again. We want to catch that, that man, that woman, and let them know there's services out there. And that, like I said it before, you're loved, you're respected. We understand the sacrifices you made for us. Now let us help you in that transition. Yeah, I mean, even finding reputable real estate people and find out about the schools and the yes. community organizations and churches and what have you. I mean, that's that's a big part of transition. Change is scary. Yes, it is. Yes, it most certainly is. There are very few people that, that advocate change. Very few. I, I've seen that. And um, like I said, I'm one of those oddballs where I thrive on it every single day. I drive my poor wife nuts. Says, I have an idea. She goes, hold on, let me get the car keys. I'm out of here. But that's, <laughs> but that's us. So again, but, and, and, and doing something like that, though, Doug, what happens is, is you start to become an agency, or um, I'll use the term bureaucracy. Yes. And that's where the disconnect comes in. And that's why there's so many um, non-for-profits out there. And even someone like myself and our organization, we exist because of the disconnect. Maybe it's, it's better not- off that way because, uh, you know, if the government could do it or would mm-hmm. do it, I don't think they'd do it well. And as you said, we tend to – and this is true in private business as well. I mean, if you don't watch out – you become a bureaucracy. First thing you know, you got three people doing the job that one should be doing. Mm-hmm. And it just grows exponentially from there. So maybe we're better off to have smaller enclaves of NGOs. Um, the example I'll use, it's it's shameful, but we, get, we had NGOs going back in Afghanistan privately rescuing people that should have been taken out by our government. Absolutely. I mean, and that's, that's amazing to me that that should have to happen, and it's amazing that they pull it off. I'm almost speechless. Yes, you're absolutely right. That should not have happened. Explain to me how can we allow that to happen, and you can't tell me you didn't see it. I mean, I'm just an average civilian on the street. I believe nothing I hear and half of what I see, and that was good advice my grandfather gave me. And it defies common sense what happened in Afghanistan. Well, and Colin Powell, God rest his soul, said, uh, you break it, you own it. Meaning that you need to have a um, you need to have a plan. When you go in someplace, you need to have a as finite as it can be. Here's my mission. When this is accomplished, these are my mileposts. Then we're going to go to exit plan. And these are the mileposts the same way we went in. We're going to go out, and it just seems that uh, that was uh, not encountered. Anyhow, let's not go down that rat hole any further. Right, right, yeah, sure. <laughs> but, you know, really, I think maybe like on a county level, so it's not too big of a, of a bureaucratic um, 
the thing that we're trying to make. I see it just as a list and making sure that, okay, I've established this list. You know, maybe it could be divided under headings. Here's what we provide. Here's who we are. Here's who to call. These are the numbers. This is our uh, Internet or our Facebook uh, information. If you need us, and and I see it as maybe quarterly, uh, somebody going out and, and saying, "Is you know, is this still relevant?" Uh, and and making corrections. I don't see it as a big deal, but then I don't have to do it. So, <laughs> I mean, right? No, you're absolutely right. And also, too, on the recently discharged, it's it's easy to say, "Oh, I'm fine. Everything's good." Blah 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 blah. And maybe it's not. And how do you? Not interfere with someone's life, but let them know that you're sincerely interested and you want to see someone good. Take advantage of the services that are out there for you. Right. That, that's a tough nut, too, because, you know, don't invade my privacy. And yet and still, we want to help you. We want to get you on your feet. We want to make sure you have a roof over your head. You have a meal on the table. You're able to take care of your family if you're the breadwinner. So where is that that line? And I don't know. I don't have that skill set. I don't either. And and what was uh, shocking to me when I started to do a little research here on something that I was writing or something I was preparing for the program is the U.S. poverty level is about seventeen five for uh, a family of two. Need two makes about twenty thousand five hundred. I mean, mm-hmm. and if you're in the uh, guard or reserve. Then you have to pick up TRICARE, and for a family of three, TRICARE can be $700 a month. I don't get that at all. I don't understand why members of the military should have to worry about feeding their families, but that's just me, and what the hell do I I know? I agree with you, and I've seen that, and I, I shake my head. I do. Again, it's just explain to me how this makes sense, and no one can. No one can. You're wearing a uniform. You don't have the opportunity to work overtime, to get a second job, to work an extra shift. You don't have that opportunity. You're you're an employee of the United States government in one of five branches, and this is what you signed up for, and this is what you're going to get. Now, life happens, whether you're wearing a uniform or not. So what can we do to help that? What can we do to supplement it? Right. Just before we, we pulled up the bootstraps and came down here, James Scoofus got about a dozen veterans together that led some uh, large agencies in Orange County. And I got an invite and I called back and I said, are you sure you want me there? Because I'm not a veteran. Oh, no, no. We know what you're doing. We want you to come. And I said, OK. And we sat around the table and we brainstormed. And we wanted to listen to everybody what it is that we did. And everybody went around the table. and I didn't say a word. And he looked at me and he said, you're next. I said, OK, well, again, I'm not the veteran here, but. Listening to you, this is what I have an idea. I said, you know, it's seasonal, but you have all these farmers markets that pop up in villages all around Orange County. How about the day, for example, the ABC farm is going to leave New Windsor and is going to go to Middletown? How about if they left one hour early and went to military housing right by Stewart and opened up their doors? and let the military families take what they need and then leave and go into your farm's market. And I bet you if you asked each of our farmers to do that, I don't think any of them would charge. They would love to do it. Absolutely, yeah. Now comes the problem. How are you going to get this done without spending a dime? Because I sincerely believe, and I say this with all sincerity, The United States government doesn't know how to fix a problem unless they spend money. 
and then I then they can't fix it. <laughs> well, you know, and that's and here again, let's have a surveys and who's it going to upset and is there a special interest group and should we get ten percent of this and why don't we consider that and let's go to bid. In the meantime, your little fire you had is now out of control. Right. So right. let your volunteers take care of this. Let's think about it. Maybe you can do it on a county level. And then it might have be so progressive and work so well, who knows, it might spread out to the entire state. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, that's, to use a cliche, that's what we used to call thinking outside the box. But it's brilliant. It's really a great, that's a great concept, a great idea. I'm not sure I would have thought of that, but great idea. Yeah. I mean, so this is, this is what it's all about. And um, we're so fortunate to have um, NGOs like yours and, and all these others involved in our communities and uh, helping out folks so is um towns for troops is it is it ever going to be bigger than it is is or would that uh, going back to our earlier thoughts kind of uh, clutter up the works and um, cause it to be less effective than it is well i would like to see it grow and I'd like to see it grow, obviously, geographically, you know, where there's a now we've dealt now with two different areas, which heavily the Hudson Valley, as you know, you've got so many veterans that live there. You've got a couple of different bases for your active duty down here in Charleston, even more so. So there's a need for it. And I could see something that we do to have a chapter spreading. And I won't say coast to coast, but maybe just along the East Coast and wherever there's an interest. Um, there certainly is a need, that's for sure. Do you know of any other organizations like yours throughout the country that uh, are doing this type of stuff? I do not, no. And oh. and if they're out there, then, you know, let's join forces. I'm not about uh, jealousy. I'm not about not sharing um, because the cause is the same. The cause is to take care of those men and women that are wearing a uniform and to help them transition into civilian life. Okay, on that note, sir, I will ask you for your closing thoughts. Well, that's the hardest question of all. <laughs> <laughs> well, like I, I, I think I mentioned already before, with the vast resources of the United States government, sometimes we trip over our own bootlaces in forming a bureaucracy, and that's what we are. I'm not criticizing it. I've worked in it. You have to understand it before you can try to implement a change a change that would make things simpler and for the better. And I'm a big advocate of that. Know what the situation is, know what the problem is. And if you keep trying to whitewash it or throw money at it, it might look good for a while, but the problem doesn't go away. You have to get to the root of any problem. And in doing so, hopefully, maybe like I said, on a lower, smaller scale, like on a county level from each state, is to take your current veterans program and do something like Larry Newman has done and put everybody in an umbrella, get those resources out there, let your veteran and active duty communities know, make those connections with your base personnel, with the CO, with his or her first sergeants. And I think that would make a difference. In fact, I know it would because I've seen it and I've seen it successful. And one topic we really haven't touched on is this the, uh, those that are uh, self-inflicted wounds or suicide. Um, we yes. all know 22 a day. We, we've heard that. It's been around for over a decade. Again, it's just something I cannot grasp because in my life, even as a manager and personally, when a problem came up, regardless of what it was, you identified the problem and then you put your resources to fix it. 
cure it, change it, make it better. And for something like this to go on for a decade is just unacceptable. I've purposely stayed away from that. I'm just not prepared to uh, to see what it is. You know, it can't be. It's not less, especially after last year with the COVID. And a lot of it got miscoded, if I can use that word, as a cause of death because of COVID. There was just a study released entitled High Suicide Rates Among United States Veterans and Veterans of the Post-9-11 Wars. This was written by Thomas Howard Seward III at Boston University. And in summary, it concludes that suicide rates among active military service and veterans in the post-9-11 wars are reaching new peaks. The study found that at least four times as many active duty personnel and war veterans of post-9-11 conflicts have died of suicide than in combat. That's an estimated 30,177 that have taken their own lives as compared to 7,057 killed in post-9-11 war operations. The report notes that the increased rates of suicide for both veterans and active duty personnel are outpacing those of the general population, an alarming shift as suicide rates among service members have historically been lower than suicide rates among the general population. As you might expect, this study finds that high suicide rates are caused by multiple factors, including risks inherent to fighting any war, such as high exposure to trauma, stress, military culture, training, continued access to guns, and difficulty reintegrating into civilian life. But the study also finds there are factors unique to post-9-11 era, including huge increases in exposure to improvised explosive devices, IEDs, and the attendant rise in traumatic brain injuries, and modern medical advances that have allowed service members to survive these and other physical traumas and return to the front lines in multiple deployments. That full paper can be found at watson.brown.edu slash cost of war, one word, slash papers slash 2021 slash suicides. And, you know, part of that 22 a day that I mentioned, we lose 10 active duty warriors a week. And that's part of that bigger circle of 22 a day when you include your veterans. And again, that's just something I do not understand. When you work with someone, when you're under the same roof, when you eat together, when you, I don't want to say sleep together, but you know what I'm saying? You've got this and you've got all the resources there. How can this number be continually to, to be the same year after year after year? Now, mind you, I did not look up to see what it is for 2020. And part of the problem is that, uh, you know, when it comes to official quote unquote statistics, you won't find those for a couple of years. <laughs> so, yeah, right. Looking for current statistics, I got 2019. What do you mean? 2019. Yep. We're in 2021. Yeah. But Again, that uh, number's been the same for a decade, and I, like I said, I just I don't have the skill set, but I find it unacceptable. And um, and of course, Rick, we know that many veterans are highly resistant to admission of war-related illness due to consequences it may bring. Uh, they may realize something is wrong, but share information only on a need-to-know basis, often leaving out important facts. Military culture tells them to bite the bullet, suck it up, drive on. And uh, they may just ignore the danger signs. The veteran's actually not aware that he or she has changed and is acting differently. Sometimes this is classically called denial. 
Veterans may be concerned about being invalidated or minimized if they speak up. Or perhaps they're simply overwhelmed and uh, they don't know a specific point of contact to seek help. This, again, is where that registry of veteran services that we discussed earlier would be helpful. Or just being a single veteran in custody of their children and the effect that going to therapy or seeking help may have on that status. Well, we know for a fact that mental illness is stigmatized in uh, general society, and uh, I'm sure that in the active military and veterans communities, that stigma is only amplified. Okay, sir, if somebody wants to help out, how do they get in touch? Sure, absolutely. Well, again, in the Hudson Valley, the best thing to do is to go to townsfortroops.com, and that's towns4troops.com. That's our website. And, of course, we're on Facebook. Um, and what I'm doing down here, we added an SE to it. that stands for Southeast. But um, you'll, find, you'll find that also on Facebook, and we have a link under our um, website. Well, thank you, Rick Wells, Executive Director, Towns for Troops, another organization making a difference for active military and our vets. Thank you, Rick. Thank you, Doug, and no soldier left behind. Thank you. Well said, sir. So here's a couple of news stories that caught our attention. Surprise, surprise, the services haven't been properly handling sexual assault cases. A Defense Department Inspector General report found that specifically trained investigators and prosecutors are not uniformly assigned to sexual assault cases in violation of regulations. There are a couple of things that are supposed to happen when a service member reports a sexual assault. First, an investigator with specific training in sexual assault cases is supposed to be assigned. And secondly, a trained special victim prosecutor is supposed to be assigned to the case. But that hasn't been happening. A recently released Defense Department Inspector General report found that commands have been mishandling these cases on grand scale. The Air Force, for example, has failed to appoint special victims prosecutors in 94% of its cases. The Navy failed to comply with the regulations 59% of the time, while it was 50 and 30% for the Army and Marine Corps, respectively. Acting DOD IG Sean O'Donnell said in a release, We found the DOD cannot ensure that all victims of sexual assault are receiving the support services available to them. We also found that the DOD cannot ensure that all commanders and investigators are making decisions based upon the best possible information because of, among other things, inexperienced or untrained prosecutors. The report also found issues with proper and consistent documentation and communication between the investigating and prosecuting teams. Army Criminal Investigation Command blamed its case management system 
which doesn't prompt investigators to document the required information. While the Navy Criminal Investigation Service and the Air Force's Office of Special Investigations said if communications weren't documented, it was an oversight on the investigator's part. Now, many of the issues are apparently due to a lack of qualified experts throughout the military's investigative commands. Recommendations include ordering reviews in each military department to determine the best way to properly train enough investigators. The IG also recommended standardizing documentation procedures and communications. As a follow-up, the Defense Department IG announced that officials will do a separate evaluation focusing specifically on military criminal investigation commands handling of sexual assault reports. Army CID is in the middle of a full overhaul as of this year following a spate of controversies that includes appointing a trained civilian investigator to do its top job. Chinese-built mock-ups of U.S. warships and aircraft meant for target practice sends a clear message to the United States military, according to a Washington, D.C.-based maritime security report. Satellite images released November 7th by U.S. Naval Institute through Maxar Technologies shows targets built in the shape of a U.S. aircraft carrier and Arleigh Burke-class guided missile destroyers at a complex of target ranges. At a November 8th news conference, the Pentagon spokesman John Kirby said that China is obviously developing capabilities meant to prevent the U.S. from reaching certain areas of the Indo-Pacific region. Also speaking at that news conference, China's Ministry of Foreign Affairs spokesman Wang Wenben said he was not aware of any target mock-ups. Subsequent satellite imagery shows what appear to be more targets in the shape of U.S. assets. A second smaller carrier was built approximately 300 miles away from the first, and images of four mock F-35 Lightning fighter jets in Zhenjiang were uh, released by the Canada-based military magazine Kanwa International Journal in its latest monthly issue, according to the South China Morning Post. Now, building of targets to simulate real-world combat is routine, but the scale and effort demonstrated by the Chinese military reflects Beijing's determination to outclass American naval power, according to Lyle Goldstein, who is director of Asian Engagement for Defense Priorities. Goldstein previously served as a research professor of the U.S. Naval War College's China Maritime Studies Institute. The Chinese know very well the U.S. satellites are monitoring and will eventually see these efforts, Goldstein said in a recent email to Stars and Stripes. The Chinese leadership has made it clear in a variety of ways that they are developing military capabilities to severely damage the U.S. Navy if it came to a military conflict. Satellite imagery comes after months of escalating tensions in the Indo-Pacific between the U.S., its allies, and China. Well, our thanks tonight to Don Shaw, Director of the Hudson Valley VA Healthcare System, and Rick Walls, Executive Director of Towns for Troops. And to you for joining us once again. Please 
Let your friends know about this program and share with us your comments and suggestions for future shows. Also, send us your upcoming events so we can get them on the air. You can drop me an email at vets at wjffradio.org. And uh, don't forget, if you or someone you know is experiencing anxiety or needs to speak to someone, here's some numbers to write down. The Veterans Crisis Line, 1-800-273-8255-PRESS-1 to speak to someone. Send a text message to 838255 to speak with a VA responder. Or you can start a confidential online chat session with the Veterans Crisis Line, one word, dot net slash chat. Don't forget Let's Talk Vets is now widely available as a podcast. On Thursday, many of us will gather with friends and family to give thanks for all the blessings that we enjoy. We must always remember those who will not be at those tables. And we leave you tonight with something to reflect upon. The 8th of November is a ballad by Big and Rich with an intro by Chris Christofferson. It is a story which is emblematic of all the battles fought, the blood shed, and the bravery shown by our active military and our veteran community so that we may live free. Happy Thanksgiving. Good night. Hello, I'm Chris Christofferson. On November 8, 1965, the 173rd Airborne Brigade on Operation Hump, War Zone D in Vietnam, were ambushed by over 1,200 B.C. 48 American soldiers lost their lives. Severely wounded and risking his own life, Lawrence Joel, a medic, was the first living black man since the Spanish-American War to receive the United States Medal of Honor for saving so many lives in the midst of battle that day. Our friend Niles Harris, retired 25 years United States Army, the guy who gave Big Kenny his top hat, was one of the wounded who lived. This song is his story. Caught in the action of kill or be killed, greater love hath no man than to lay down his life for his brother. Left South Dakota to fight for the red, white, and blue. He was 19 and green with a new M16, just doing what he had to do. He was dropped in the jungle where the choppers would rumble with the smell of napalm in the air. Then the sergeant said, Look up ahead. Like a dark evil cloud, 1,200 came down on him and 29 more. They fought for their lives, but most of them died in the 173rd Airborne. On the 8th of November, the angels were crying as they carried his brothers away. With the fire raining down in the
his ponytail's gray, but the battle's still blazing in his head. He limps when he walks, but he's strong when he talks about the shrapnel that left in his leg. He puts on a gray suit over his airborne tattoo, and he ties it on one time a year. And remembers the fallen as he orders a tall one. Swallows it down with his tears On the 8th of November The angels were crying As they carried his brothers away With the fire raining down And the hell all around There were few men left standing that day Saw the eagle fly Through a clear blue sky 1965 On the 8th of November The angels were crying As they carried his brothers away With the fire raining down And the hell all around There were few men left standing that day On the 8th of November Radio Catskills annual music sale returns to the White Sulphur Springs Fire Hall this Saturday. We have records, CDs, stereo equipment, musical instruments, and more. Bid on rare and collectible items at the silent auction table. Browse through bins of vinyl price to move. The WJFF Radio Catskill Music Sale this Saturday in White Sulphur Springs. Doors open at 11. Info at WJFFradio.org. You're listening to Radio Catskill. I'm your host, Kuzar Grace KG, right here in the place to be. The Music Emporium, Tuesday, 7 to 9, on 90.5 FM, community-supported radio, serving the Catskills, Northeast Pennsylvania, and the Upper Delaware Valley. All those other towns, villages, and hamlets who pick up our broadcast, big shout-out to you. 
You're listening to WJFF Jeffersonville. We are Radio Catskill. Public radio for the Catskills, Northeast Pennsylvania and beyond.